Welcome to Scrub Chat, a podcast of sharing stories by veterinary professionals for veterinary professionals. I'm your host, Kim Farina, a veterinarian, a writer. I've worked in the animal health industry, and prior to that, I was an MTV journalist and a radio personality. So yes, my career has taken me in lots of different directions. In each episode of Scrub Chat, I sit down and chat with a veterinarian or technician as they share their own directions what's worked, what hasn't, and how they've made it all fit. Thank you for joining me as we explore veterinary medicine combined with all the other aspects of our lives. Zoetis has generously created these podcasts to help support the profession we love. Today, we get to chat with Melissa Supernor, a certified veterinary technician with a specialty in small animal internal medicine and founder of the consulting company Educational Advocates for the Veterinary Team. She is also the Director of Nursing Operations for Pathway Vet Alliance. Glad to have you on the show, Melissa. Uh, Thank you, Kim. Thank you for having me. This is such an honor to talk to you guys today. Well, it's great to have you. We're so happy. So I have to tell you, when I was researching you for the show, which I do for all my guests, I, I did notice a few things. One is that your name is all over the web. So you've been definitely busy. And second, when I saw your resume, you have six credential abbreviations after your name. You're, yeah. you're not happy just with one credential, yet you, you go for the six. That's no, incredible. I, I actually love to educate myself. It's one of my biggest, most important things, I think, in our career is to continue to educate ourselves. Excellent. Well, I can't wait to hear your story. I, I'd like to start with talking about your history because it's, it's very interesting. Um, first, you got your associate's degree in veterinary technology and became a certified veterinary technician in 1990. And then 10 years later, you went back to school for a degree in psychology, despite being already a certified tech. So, And then we're going to talk about your specialty in small animal medicine, but what was the psych degree about and, and so many years later? So I actually uh, had been always, again, wanted to educate myself. Um, psych has always been a, a love of mine, a passion of mine. I just didn't know where it was going to fit into the veterinary side of my other passion. Um, I actually went to a lecture right around 92, 93 um, that's actually called Don't Kill Your Boss which I actually thought was interesting. And I went up to the speaker after that and asked her how I could actually do what she was doing um, to lecture um, and what degrees did she get? And the degree she had was veterinary technology and psychology. So at that time I said, oh, I have to try to do this. Um, I actually was working for Tufts University at the time. And I said, this is actually a time to be able to do it. Um, to be able to work during the day and have uh, to do school at night. So yeah. it took me about seven, eight years to get it. And once I got it, um, I was proud of that degree also. Yes, definitely, you know, to have that discipline. And how has that degree come in handy? Oh, I, actually, I <laughs> thought at one point I was actually going to go out and do some counseling Um And I found that actually just working day to day in the veterinary field, um, I used it more than actually my veterinary technology degree. Um, Just working day to day and and learning about humans and being able to understand um, the human animal bond and also understand how to work with 
every type of uh, special humans that we work with. So it actually has come in handy as I progressed through my education, working on the compassion fatigue side was one of the things that actually I used my degree more on and being able to understand how to talk to people about compassion fatigue and burnout. Yeah. So I almost feel like, Melissa, every veterinary technician and veterinarian for that part should have a psych degree. Um, it's important, I think, <laughs> um, for sure. I I found that it was a very helpful and actually a lot of veterinarians and a lot of veterinary technicians that I talk to actually do have some type of psych classes um, to go along with their degree. Um, I actually talked to a veterinarian this morning that actually has a degree in psych also, um, which I thought was pretty interesting um, that she has the same avenue, one going to tech school and one going to vet school and how much we used it, the, the psychology degree more than our other degree. Wow. I'm almost, I have to say, we barely know each other right now because we just started chatting, but I'm a little nervous to reveal too much because maybe you're going to say, oh, Kim, you have you have issues. No, believe me, <laughs> you can't say anything that I haven't already heard. Right, right. I, you know, we're going to circle back to this because I think there's a lot of um, things to unpack. I have a question about your specialty in small animal medicine. Why did you specialize? Um, at the time, I was working at Tufts University as their uh, only internal medicine technician. And I really fell in love with internal medicine, really working with the endocrine dis diseases and the liver and the kidneys. When the founders came to us and asked us to help with the to get the specialty up and running. So it works really well to be able to communicate that specialty with clients and other veterinary professionals. And do you feel that you have to specialize to be successful? And, and kind of what I'm asking, another way of asking it is like, would your recommendation be to our listeners is to get a special, you know, to obtain a specialty? Um, I don't think it's necessary in the field to have a specialty, but on the other side, I think if their passion is to grow, I do feel that you know, a specialty would be important. There are, you know, 16 different specialties as of now, um, and they could be growing faster and faster as uh, the years go on. So I think anybody in any type of practice can actually get their specialty no matter what they're doing in their practice. Do you recommend getting it early in your career or should you work in the, the practice for a few years or however long? Because again, it was a while before you got your specialty and then kind of see what you're interested in and then go back and get it. Or can they do it right out, you know, right out of tech school? They can do it right out of tech school as long as they have the criteria set up by that specialty. So a three to five year criteria. Um, I think if they find their passion to be a certain thing right out of college, because a lot of students do say that they really like anesthesia or they like dental. Um, so they might be able to, to find that passion early in their career. Um, I actually did want to get my specialty before internal medicine came up and I just wasn't sure where I wanted to go. There wasn't as much um, specialties out there at that time. So I didn't know how to um, build that specialty up to where I wanted to do. It is a hard road. However, I think that um, the 
other technicians out there that want to do a specialty, and I see them all the time. I actually just got back from ACVIM, um, and the interest out there for specialties is huge. So I think that they should be able to find what their specialty is or what their passion is and then follow that road. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about what led you to Pathway Vet Alliance. Uh, what, what do you actually do as director of nursing operations? Uh, Pathway, I, so what I do is actually there's a, my positions has a lot of layers. Um, an easy description for it is really overseeing the medical support team operations. So working with the veterinary technicians, the veterinary assistants, the CSRs, uh, the kennel, and really working through what their growth path is um, and how can Pathway help progress them through their growth um, while they're working in one of our practices. And I was intrigued because when I was reading, you know, your duties and so forth, I also noticed that you have to, um, you're in charge of possibly scheduling the workday, like efficiency of clinic flow and, and procedures. And, and I was wondering if you could give us some tips on, um, for those of us in practice, you know, what you know. Um, I think one of the biggest things for uh, flow in a hospital or in a practice is utilizing your technicians um, to the best of their abilities and giving them the tasks that they should be doing um, and letting the doctors do their jobs. And then once you see that flow, you make a team effort that way. And then they really do see the flow work so much better in a hospital. Um, I, being one of the only technicians in the internal medicine group at Tufts, is I was the one that worked that flow. So that what Clients don't, shouldn't have to wait that long with their patients and our patients shouldn't have to wait. And then being able to develop that flow so everybody gets everything done efficiently and to the best of the ability for that patient. Patient care is number one in obviously everybody's eyes. And I think that's a really important thing for us to come back and remember that, you know, a dog or cat should not have to wait hours to have you know, to be seen or to have different tests. I brought my cat in this morning to the vet and within five minutes of her arrival, she was in the exam room being examined by the technician. And then two minutes later, the doctor came in to do her exam. That's how the flow should go. A real true testament to uh, teamwork. Yeah. And, and, you know, you're saying it's teamwork, it's efficiency. It's not, they're cutting corners and not doing things. It's just no. being, it's being done in an efficient way. Right. Yeah. Efficiency is big in veterinary medicine. And the, the more efficient you become as a team, the better, the better you can do patient care, plus the faster you can actually do get on to the next patient to make sure that nobody's waiting, plus that we get those critical, urgent patients done um, quickly so they can get the tasting done as fast as we can. Yeah. I see your passion for this job. It, I can see it in your face. And I'm, what, what do you like about it? Oh, I, I love my profession. My profession is the best. I mean, you know, as a veterinarian, you know that we have the best profession in, in the world right now. And I, you know, I'm almost 30 years in and I, I didn't never see myself ever leaving. Um, I don't see myself ever retiring. It's just been watching it from what it was 1990 when I came out of school to now and how much more technicians can do um, from specialties all the way up to where we're really running those hospitals and those practices um, without the technicians and the veterinary assistants, 
you know, they, they can't really run the medical operations the way that they would like to. You know, I've had a number of technicians come on the show, Melissa, and they all started in practice and then moved into another career path that was non-clinical. Is this the realistic end goal for technicians? Like, like in order to pay bills or live a comfortable life, is that every technician's end destination? Um, I don't think it's every technician's end destination. I had some medical issues that um, barred me from really working as a technician um, on the floor, uh, technician for for a couple years. And by that point, I had found that my passion was really um, moving into the educational realm uh, for the technicians and um, the veterinary team around. Um, I will at some point go back to clinical practice, even in the position I am now, there is actually a lot of work, uh, boots on the ground type work uh, with my practice now, with my practices now. And so it almost sounds like you have a perfect world because you're doing, you know, you're in this administrative educating role, but yet you're still going to be touching our furry patients. I do actually have the perfect role that I am in right now. Um, I love what I do. Um, I feel that I've been doing this for almost 30 years and I feel like I have a lot to give back to my profession. Um, And this is one of the ways I can give back is to learn from the technicians that I work with every day, um, what their passions and uh, inspirations are, aspirations are, but also to give back um, on my education and be able to help the, the, you know, the newer technicians to be able to build up to what they would like to do. Mm-hmm. And as we talk about education and your passion for it, about 10 years ago, you also started your own consulting company, Educational Advocates for the Veterinary Team. Why? Um, there's a lot of backstory to that uh, altogether, but it was actually after uh, a friend of mine, a veterinarian, committed suicide. I I was concerned of where our, pro- our profession was going, um, and I wanted to try to figure out, and just myself, I wanted to figure out what is behind our profession? Are our technicians and our veterinarians leaving the field? Are they leaving for certain reasons, minus the, obviously, the suicides and the compassion fatigue and stuff, but where is that where's that divide from? So I started my company and it, as it turns out is some of the stuff that I found that I had passion for is lecturing onto the personal and professional development stage itself. So I really started to look at bullying in our field and that actually became my passion is educating people on bullying. What does that mean in our profession? And is that a reason for some of these people to leave the field and to, you know, to commit suicide and those type of other avenues that they're going to. So that was actually where it came from. And then it just grew and grew from there where I have a very small team that actually lectures underneath me on all different subjects. And so it really sounds like you assessed the field combined with your um, unfortunate personal experience and then decided to fill that need that you saw was so evident. Yes. Um, I, I, my own backstory is that in one of my positions, I was bullied pretty bad. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it meant. Um, so until 
a friend of mine told me that this is exactly what was going on. I never saw that. So I really saw that, you know, that we are human. So it's, it's an animal that we actually would, you know, work through something like that some point in our careers. It's not our profession. It's all professions. And I just said at that point is how can I help our profession to be able to um, come back from some of these, the, the worst parts of our profession and be able to turn those things around. And that's what my passion really became is this is how I can give back. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, this profession is awesome. It's, you know, in its own way, we have challenges and twists and turns like anything else, but how can we as the group inside be able to give back? And that was one of the ways that I knew I could give back is to, to bring awareness to, um, bullying, to suicide, to depression, to, you know, toxicity and negativity, and then how to turn it around to be a positive and to be able to move forward. Let me ask you this uh, about bullying, because in case some of our listeners may be experiencing it and they don't even know that's what it is, can you share with us some of the signs of bullying and then what you do about it? So some of the signs are the same signs that you see in a high school setting for a child being bullied. The only difference between, well, one of the only differences, it's not the only one, but one of the only differences is, is mostly is that the bully in the adult world is they cause a threat in some way. And it's a perception on the bully that this threat is happening. It's not on the target. Um, And then for a child is obviously they have some type of challenge or differences that the bully doesn't understand. And that's why that bullying happens. But for us adults is how do we help that? How do we recognize it? The, The thing is, is sometimes you still won't recognize it until you start to talk to a colleague or a friend, which is where it actually happened with me when I started talking about it. One of the biggest things I think behind this is the gossiping. You don't really see the outlayer of it, but I actually had a doctor tell me every single day for the whole time I was working at the practice was that I'm not a good technician and why am I being a technician and those type of things. So, and I started to believe them. So then my skills started to diminish because I was too afraid to do anything in front of him because I knew that that repercussions is going to come back to that. So to recognize it is, it's hard. I usually tell people to tell their story and then let's talk about how that is that bullying and whatnot. And if you can't talk to a colleague, talk to a friend or a family member, or talk to a counselor or talk to an HR person. It's really important to have somebody to talk to on the outside. Some of the bullying things are very out there that people are yelling at people in front of others. They're calling them names. Bullying is not just a male-female thing or a male-to-male or female-to-female. It can be any work work around it. Bullying is not against the law in a lot of states. So unless you can tag it as harassment, you may not ever get some relief from it. To help for it is to recognize it and then get yourself out of that situation in any way you can. A lot of people believe the bully more than they believe the target. So that's really important to understand and be able to 
find some way to help. Um, and I think that you can do it. You just have to have the courage to do it. You have to take care of yourself and to get yourself to safety, no matter what it is. That's the important aspect of that. You know, when we talk about safety and being in a good environment, what um, it's interesting because one of the positions you've had is at uh, VCA Antech in the hospital management and regional technical education. And I actually worked for a VCA hospital years ago. I didn't even know a position like that existed. What did you do? Did it range from everything? I'd like to know what you did. And then did it range like on all topics? Well, I start. I started when I started with VCA. I started as a manager in a practice, and then my regional manager at that time wanted me to start to work and move around to other practices to help them with flow and management, team culture, and those type of things. So I actually was moving around, and then we started doing training. And the training could be anything from how to put a catheter in to how to deal with difficult clients or how to deal with other difficult team members and those type of things. So just using my day-to-day knowledge to be part of a team. And I was, I was boots on the ground and working as if I was a technician in that hospital or a manager in that hospital and just be able to bring the cultures back to a positive culture. And every, every practice was different. And I learned a ton from VCA days and just to see you know, the sister hospital is so different. And what can I do to help influence a positive culture? And that's really what that job entailed. That job sequentially turned into kind of two separate positions where now they have their tech educators on one side and then their team management team on the other side. So it actually became an array of positions after I had actually left um, that position altogether. So you must have been doing a whole lot for it to, it was started as one position with you, Melissa, and then it became a bunch after it means that you were doing the work of like five people. Yeah. And that's what I love about our profession and different practices is you can do many different things within one job. A common theme that I'm seeing or I'm I'm hearing in our conversation is, is about learning. And you were a clinical instructor at a couple of different schools. What attracted you to those positions? Um, actually, it was by fluke. Um, when Becker- Oh, tell me. Yeah, it actually was an um, entertaining uh, story is Becker came to me, a friend of mine that worked at Becker at the time came to me and said, we really need a new uh, clinic instructor, not clinical, just clinic instructor. And I said, well, I never want to lecture. So I just want to be in the clinic setting teaching. And she said, that's all you have to do until probably about a year later. And a colleague decided to leave and they said, here you go. You're lecturing now. And then I found it to be so interesting and so much fun. And I'm entertaining to say the least. Sometimes I do, as I say, stupid things. Uh, but I, I had uh, great students and I learned a lot from my students, probably just as much as they learned from me. And we really found that just teaching on a formal level and teaching in a classroom hands-on was so important. One of the first days, and my students will actually tell you the same story, is I almost fell off the little stage that they had. Oh. Um, and uh, which actually opened up me to them as I'm a normal person that you don't have to be fearful of this professor that is in front of you. Um, and actually with that team, the, that uh, class alone, 
They were such a great class and actually one of my favorite classes on the technician side. Um, and even to this day, they still talk about that and how that actually made them feel grounded and more um, calm in the class. So it actually was, and they, they do talk about it, even though it was a little bit of an embarrassment for me, it actually did open up that, that chain and that, that conversation with them and that, you know, we're all human. We do things like that, um, which is a normal day-to-day -day atmosphere for me as I entertain by accident on most points. <laughs> you know, I like to ask my guests who have been in a instructor role, what advice you would give to students, either veterinary students or vet tech students, because, you know, you're on the other side of them. You have this great vantage point from where you stand with all the experience. And now, you know, you're instructing them. What advice would you give them? I think a few things is have self-awareness. I think it's really important for them to be understanding of what you are actually bringing to the table and what your own emotions and sensitivities are um, and how you actually deal with those day in and day out. The other things I think we can bring to the table is creativity and sense of humor. Laugh at yourself. It's okay. It's really okay to have a sense of humor in veterinary medicine because we need it. We need to be able to laugh day in and day out and always continue to learn. Always challenge yourself to learn. If you don't know something about kidney disease and somebody's talking about it, ask questions or learn on your own. I was very big at, if I didn't understand something, I'd write it down. Once I got home, I would look at a book and open it up and read about kidney disease or diabetes or whatever it is. And I want to be able to understand it all because I have to educate that client on that particular disease or on vaccines or whatever the case would be. So educate yourself is very important and continue to learn is very important for those students. Speaking of, again, continuing to learn, you have many, many, many credentials and I'd like to talk about the CFE and the CCFP and how you, what they are and how you traveled on that road to get those uh, certifications. Uh, so uh, CFE is your Compassion Fatigue Educator. And then your CCFP is your Certified Compassion Fatigue Professional. Obviously, they're very close. And I got my educator one first. So really, I could understand what compassion fatigue was and be able to educate others on it. And I found that that was one of the reasons why our field was going into the, I don't want to say wrong direction, but the more desperate part of the profession is compassion fatigue and burnout. And to be able to bring awareness, I wanted to have as much knowledge behind it as I could. And that's why I went and got that certification for the professionals. And leading up to that, at some point in the future, I would like to become some type of prof uh, personal coach or professional coach in that in this realm. And let's clarify for our listeners, what is compassion fatigue? Yeah, so compassion fatigue, uh, burnout and compassion fatigue are very close to each other. Burnout is, both of them are a feeling or a point of exhaustion. Um, it just depends on where you are in it. And so compassion fatigue is, as I can say, and the best de definition for myself is exhaustion for us self-helpers. Um, and the way that our profession is going is we are a, a, a helping profession. And that really starts to weigh on us where 
we are here for our patients 24-7, which good and bad, but we don't always take care of ourselves first. Yeah, and, and you know, you're, you're saying the answer to it or, or what you need to do about it if you're suffering from that is, you know, take care of yourself. Right. But what does that look like? Um, I think that it depends on the person, what that looks like. So I, I love, I mean, you can see that I have a lot of different jobs and I'd love to do that. Um, when people say to have a, you know, self-care is what do you want to do outside of the profession? I have different hobbies that I enjoy. I do like photography, which gets me back to nature. I do like to work out. I like to exercise, which also gets me back to nature. So I really find times when I, I I call it, I undeviceize myself. So I shut down all my devices, turn off my phone. I turn off all the devices. I turn off my computer and I just have time that I can do other things. That's not related to the field, you know, reading, gardening, whatever people like to do is get back and do it. It's okay to turn off for an hour, half an hour a night. It's okay. Melissa, you have such a robust career. And it definitely seems far from over. I mean, you like you're going, your foot is on the pedal, and there's no stopping. Um, what I'd like to know is, what's the reasoning for having all these experiences? Like, like it goes back to what we were talking about, and I, I want to unpack it more. So, like, say you're in a job like at at Tufts or your VCA job. Was it? Was it dissatisfaction that drove you to other opportunities, or just like? You were perfectly humming along in your career, and then this new opportunity landed in your lap, and you're like, "Hey, why not?" Because what what I'm getting at is, does unhappiness does not need or drive your career opportunities? That's that's what I want want to know. Yeah, I don't. I I'm not an unhappy person in any way, and and I think that what I always did is to look at challenges is what is my next challenge? What is my next passion? And how can I drive myself towards it? Some of these jobs have just come upon after some kind of twist and turn um, that had happened that I wasn't ready for, um, where in one of my jobs, I was actually, um, my position was eliminated. So I had to move on and to find the next passion. And I did take a little time before I did that. But really, it came down to is what do I want to do? What do I want to do it for myself? But also, how do I? How can I help my profession? Um, and I think that each of my jobs is the next step up from the previous. So it's something different. Um, and it really is how I've always. My whole life has been that way. Of what's the next challenge? Can I get? You know, when I was back in high school, I played every sport. Is what was my fun of that? You know what was the next home run or what was the next goal I was make or whatever the case would be is how do I challenge myself throughout my whole career? And there isn't stopping. I don't think there's ever stopping anyone in our profession. I think that when you find what you want, you go after it. You could be in that for 30 years and be happy with it. But is there something else that you could challenge yourself to the next level? And I think our profession is full of people that are just like me, where we find what we want, but we find the next thing and we find the next thing and enjoy what we do. We could do, I have a friend who does 10 jobs and they're all 10 different jobs. They're not all veterinary jobs, but they're fun for her and they don't look at it as a job. And I think that's what is important is if I got 
bored or unhappy, yeah, I will find something else new, but there's always something that I want to challenge. Yeah, that's what you I that's that's what I'm getting. It's like it's the challenge that makes you move on. It's not because you're so miserable. It's right. it's like bring it on. Like right. what else can I experience in my wonderful life? Right. And I think that's how you have to do life around. I don't think it's just your profession or what your job is is your life has to be that is what is the next thing that you could do in your life to challenge yourself. You're also an author. I mean, of a lot of things. If if someone wanted to go down that road of of writing, how would they get started? Um, it depends on what they're what they would like to write on. Um, but I think the biggest thing is one: don't let anybody stop you from writing. Don't let anybody stop you from your idea. If you have an idea that they say that's never going to fly in our field, don't let it stop you. What I have found is I have talked to a lot of of the veterinary magazine peeps, if I want to say it that way. And I told them that this is what I want to do for a topic. Can you be the group that does it? If not, I move on to the next. I think for veterinary technicians, NAFTA is a big one. They have a nice NAFTA journal. I think that all our, you know, NAVC, AVMA, they all have great journals. There's a lot out there. There's probably 20 something odd journals out there. Find what your passion is, if it's personal, professional development, or if it's on the VTLs realm or the CVT realm, find what you're passionate about and write and then submit it to them. And then, you know, they have their own editors that will help you out and go through this process. And after my first one, I just fell in love with it. Is there anything else that you would, um, any advice you would give to early career veterinarians or vet techs um, who are entering the field? Um, I think one of the things is never to let your fears of the unknown stop you from pursuing your possibility or your passion. I think that's really important. That's where I've gone. And then give back to your community as you can. We all need everybody. And I think that that's really important. That is, if you're educating yourself on a certain subject and you really love and you're passionate about that, bring it to all of us because we we need it just as much. And I think to share your story. It's so important to share our stories out there because you know, until I started listening to some of the different stories, I didn't know half of the stuff, even great colleagues of mine that I've been friends with for 10, 20 years, and I don't even know their backstories. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Thank you, Melissa. Kim. It was really enjoyable. It was a very it was wonderful. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, thank you. This concludes another episode of Scrub Chat, a podcast of sharing stories by veterinary professionals for veterinary professionals. Please remember to visit VetDance at www.vetdance.com and check out Zoetis Commitment to Veterinarians on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to get more information about life issues such as handling student debt, reducing stress, communication skills, and reputation management. VetBance is also available as a mobile app on both Apple and Android devices. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email at scrubchat at zoetis.com. We'd love to hear from you. And please don't forget to share and review this podcast so we can produce more in the future. We are grateful to Zoetis for the support. Until next time, this is Scrub Chat.